We'll come to Acts 2 here, and, and this really is, I would say, one of the most amazing pieces of evangelism that has ever been performed of all time, because even the Lord Jesus didn't, I, I think, convert to the point of baptism thousands of people just instantly. The more you read and reread Acts 2, the more it's apparent that there is something here most unusual, that there were thousands of people who heard one man, Peter, preaching and were cut to their hearts and said, what must we do to be saved? And then they immediately are baptised. That a whole bunch of people could be persuaded that quickly, I think is, is quite amazing. And this really is, as I say, the most unusual incident of evangelism which there has ever, ever really been, it, it seems to me. Now, why was it that Peter, if you like, pulled this off? Why was it that God used him? Well, Peter had just denied the Lord, and just, what, six weeks before. And this whole incident happens a stone's throw from the high priest's house, where he, had been, uh, he was known to have denied Jesus. Now, we have the record of his denials as it actually happened in the Gospels. But you can imagine how that would have been exaggerated and twisted into things that it really wasn't by the process of gossip, by the usual uh, way that people tend to twist that kind of thing, that everyone loves a failure and they love to exaggerate it. You can imagine how the girl who said to, said to him, you know, you were one of them, and he said, no, no, I never knew the man, and he runs off, etc., uh, you can imagine how she would have exaggerated what really happened. So there was Peter, really he'd let the side down, and I know they all forsook the Lord and fled, but his failure was particularly public. He had denied Jesus in essence just as, as Judas had betrayed him. And yet God chose Peter to do this amazing work, this totally unusual act of being the channel that was chosen through whom to persuade thousands of people and get them right persuaded at, their, at the very core of their heart so that they say, you know, what must we do to be saved? And he baptizes them straight away. Now he says, verse 38, when they said, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins. I mean, who's the, the parade example at this time in Jerusalem of repentance? I mean, it's Peter, and it was all publicly known, uh, etc. And yet God didn't put him on the back burner, not even for, for, for a couple of weeks. He pushes him right up front, as this is the one that I will use. And this is, of course, a great theme with God, that he seems to take particular pleasure in using those that are, are weak. You just see the record of the judges in particular, how he uses um, the left-handed, how he uses those rejected by their brethren, etc. This is his style of working, how he used a young man like David to kill great Goliath without any armor, etc. This is the hallmark, I think, of God's, God's operation. And it comes down, if we want to be used by God, it comes down to whether we perceive our own smallness and lowness and our own weakness. And then his strength is made perfect in weakness, as, as Paul says.
all the way through this uh, speech of Peter, it seems to me that there is allusion to the, um, the, the personal experience of Peter in his failures. So he says, for example, in verse 39, that this gift of the Holy Spirit, which I submit is, uh, is salvation, he says, to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are afar off. Now, three times in the record of the denials, it is recorded that Peter followed Jesus afar off. If you want to write them down, it's Matthew 26:58, Mark 14:54. Luke 22:54, and there's also a slight nuance in the Greek text there in verse 39. To all that are afar off really implies to all those others who are also far off, which is rather uh, strange uh, as a construction if Peter is simply referring to, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. I would submit that he uses that construction because he himself feels that he's the one who followed Jesus afar off and now here he is. Uh, himself having been afar off and having been made nigh, he's saying, look, this promise of salvation is to all who are far off. And when he says that they should save themselves from this, uh, this evil generation... Um, this appeal that he, he makes to save, save yourselves, uh, I think he's alluding there to how he, he was there uh, on the lake when he was drowning, and he puts out his, his hand and says, Lord, save me. He talks here about salvation, but what he's saying is, look, I also myself was slipping and about to die, and I desperately cried out to the Lord uh, for salvation. He also... Uh, called upon the name of the Lord when he said, Lord, save me. And so when he appeals here and uh, later on in, uh, in Acts 3 and 4, when he appeals for people to call upon themselves the name of the Lord in baptism into the Lord's name, then he's really alluding to how he himself appealed to the Lord and called upon the Lord for his personal salvation from death. So then, this is, I think, the way to effective witness, to recognize our own weakness, and on that basis to appeal to people. Because the good news of salvation is not simply that if you believe, you will get a future kingdom. The good news of salvation is that you will be forgiven for all your sin. And I would say that psychologically that is the good news that people need. More than even the idea that, hey, you want a, a wonderful time in the future, you can have it. Because people are often not functional enough to really want that. You know, you can say to some people, would you like a wonderful life, a wonderful this, that and the other, and they just... They just don't have that kind of ambition. They, they don't see it in those terms. And that's why the good news of the kingdom, which Jesus preached, is not actually talking about a future time to come. He, he occasionally alludes to it, but 
that's not actually the good news of the kingdom, which we're told the parables of Jesus explain. Those parables are largely about the experience of forgiveness and salvation and grace in this life. That was the good news. The way of life now, that is possible. Now, that is not to eclipse the, uh, the, the hope of eternal salvation, and it is that hope the light at the end of the tunnel, which of course motivates human life right now. And yet what I'm saying is that I think many people, all of us in some ways at some times, are too weak to be motivated by a future hope. We're trying to cope psychologically with the fact we know that we have sinned seriously and the need to be right with God. And it is that which Peter is offering here is that which Jesus offered. And I suppose we'd better look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. And with those words, he appealed to them, verse 40, save yourselves, and as I've said, that this is the same word that, that he used to... Um, to Jesus when he's drowning on the lake, save me, Lord. Now, <clears throat> what is this promise? The uh, more conservative view would be that uh, this is the promise of being able to, to do miraculous things, particularly to speak in tongues, uh, etc. And that when later on uh, Peter talks, when he's talking about the Cornelius situation, he says God gave them the same gift, the like gift as he did unto us, therefore the, the gift he has in mind is miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit and the idea is that the promise was to you, that's the generation of Jews that were listening to him uh, to your children, a second generation, and to all that are afar off would then be the Gentiles in other words Every single person in the first century and the second generation who repented and was baptized in the name of Jesus received the gift of miraculous powers. But I query that. I query that just practically because, I mean, verse 39 says that as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him, that whoever <clears throat> then is called and whoever is baptized uh, is to receive this uh, this gift. But I'm not at all sure that that really happened. I mean, if we're going to interpret this in terms of the, the gift of tongues, well, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians where he, he says that that gift is, is not really very important and you should seek gifts such as gift of prophecy that can uh, build up the body of Christ. And he says there, also 1 Corinthians 12, that <clears throat> in the first century church, or at least in the church at Corinth, different believers were given different gifts, and not everybody spoke with tongues. So to interpret this as the speaking in tongues, I, I, I think that's really a, a bit of a weak argument. And indeed, there is no real evidence that every single baptized believer in the first and second generations of Christianity could do miracles, could do these miraculous things. I, I don't uh, see that. And of course, it's assuming that all those that are afar off uh, refers to the, uh, the Gentiles. You, you would have 
assumed that the book of Acts then would give testimony to the fact that every single Jew and Gentile who were baptized in the period that it's recording uh, started to speak in tongues and do amazing things and pull rabbits out of hats and, and heal broken bones and raise dead people out of cemeteries and stuff like that. I do not get that impression from reading the Acts and, and the Epistles that that is really what happened. Now, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is a, an ambiguous genitive. It, it could be the gift which is the Holy Spirit, or the gift which the Holy Spirit gives. And I think that that gift is the gift, ultimately, of salvation. And that is, of course, backed up very clearly uh, in, in, uh, in the New Testament, that salvation is a gift. Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. So I think that he's saying, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, get remission of your sins, and you shall receive, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, salvation, blessing, etc. Now when we come to how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, particularly in Ephesians, he talks about how God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Uh, and you got that in Galatians as well, uh, Galatians 4.6. Uh, because you are sons, and you could argue that that's an allusion to baptism, baptism into God's Son, therefore God sent forth the Spirit of his, his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I think the, the desire to interpret the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 there as miraculous gifts is to kind of uh, shy away from the idea that God might just be doing something in human hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in our generation. And the fact that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit have been taken away, uh, which I, I think is, is clear, even if one wants to believe that they're around, well I'm afraid one only has to compare the so-called miracles that are done with the, the biblical descriptions of, of healings, etc., and there's really no comparison. I mean, Jesus could heal people who were total unbelievers. You know, he healed the blind man and uh, said, Do you believe on the Son of God? He said, who is he? Um, or the lame man in John 5 by the pool of Bethesda. Uh, he had no idea, really, about Jesus. And so the idea that which you hear today by those who claim they've got the gifts of, of healing, etc., that, ah, yeah, I couldn't do that miracle because you didn't believe. You don't need your audience to believe if you've really got these gifts. And Jesus said, when you've got the Comforter, greater works than what I have done, you shall do. Because I go to my Father and I'm going to give you these miraculous gifts. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I don't see greater works than what Jesus did being done today. And that's, I think, beyond argument. But that does not mean that God is not alive and active. No matter how you want to interpret Acts 2, the point is, from Galatians 4, that because we are God's children, by baptism into Christ, he has done something. He has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts. Now, this is not talking about miraculous gifts. This is talking about the result of having been accepted into the family of God and being the true children of God. Now, again, uh, Ephesians has uh, a lot to say about this um, 
gift of God. He, he says in Ephesians 3, uh, 15 and 16, he says that in Christ the whole family of heaven in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, it's another allusion, as you've got in Galatians 4 there, to having been baptized, accepted into the fam- family, treated as if you are Jesus. And he says, I pray that he would grant you, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, to the end that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that implies you have been grounded, something has been done to you, that may be strong to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So there is some activity of God upon the human heart as a result of our baptism into Jesus, as a result of us being seen by him as if we are Jesus. And there's two other uh, aspects of this biblically I want to talk about. One is in Romans, where in Romans 1-8 to you have this outline of the Gospel, and it's all very thematic, although it's rather hard to follow the themes sometimes, but his whole point is we're sinners, but we stand at the day of judgment even in this life, and we are declared right. We're not just let off. We're not just uh, somehow justice is not perverted. We are declared right. We're not told, well, don't do it again, son. I'll let you off this time, this lifetime kind of thing. But no. We are declared right, quite legitimately, because we are in Jesus. We will be in the kingdom. We are looked at by God as if we are him. Okay. But then you come to Romans 8, and there is all this talk about the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God working in human life. Again, working uh, in our hearts uh, so that we cry out, Abba, Father, etc. Now, does Paul just push, push down his scroll a bit and uh, or turn over a new page and think, yeah, okay, well, it's chapter 8 now. I'll start telling these guys about something to do with the, with the work of the Spirit. No, it's not like that. This follows on from what he's been saying. Why does he talk about the transformation of the heart, of the mind, of the believer by the Spirit of God in chapter 8? What connection has that got with all that he's been saying about us being declared right by status before God? Well, I think the connection is this, that he's saying, yes, that is how you are seen. That, that, that is how the status that God sees you in is as if you're Jesus. But you've got to live out in practice, or try to live out in practice, how he sees you. It's like if you have a partner that thinks you're great and loves you and thinks you're wonderful, and you no, no one is wonderful. Well, you try to be in practice how they think of you. And that is, I think, our response to the love of God in justifying us. But it's not just left to us. God also is working in practice to make us in reality what he sees us as being. And that is where the work of the Spirit comes in. The other aspect I want to talk about, about the work of the Spirit, is that we're not under the old covenant, right? We're under the new covenant. And how do you enter the new covenant? By being baptized. 
and then you are in Christ and then as Galatians 3 says the promises that were made to Abraham are made to you and as Paul says in Romans that the, uh, the promises to Abraham were actually the, the basis of the new covenant but when you come to Jeremiah 31 and we read a bit more about the new covenant the new covenant is God saying to people you don't seem to be able to keep my laws and my commandments if I just put it on a plate in front of you as I did with the law of Moses you seem to just run the other way so therefore in this new covenant I will write my law, my word in your heart now that's what Jeremiah says and it's quoted like that in Hebrews and we are told that in Hebrews that that new covenant applies to us now the new covenant is not simply promises made to Abraham we shall live forever in God's kingdom on earth it is that but to prepare us for that time to transform us from who we are now into who we shall eternally be so that we take that eternal inheritance God is writing his word upon the human heart now Jeremiah 31 does not directly talk about the activity of God's spirit but how does God do anything he does it through his spirit so then, the situation that uh, we have is that we're baptized, we enter the new covenant, and that means that God writes his words, his word and, and his law upon our hearts. And, uh, the context of Jeremiah 31 is God lamenting Israel's disobedience, and it's the same really with Hebrews, how it's quoted, that uh, yeah, he had given them his law and they hadn't kept it. So he's almost saying, okay, I will sort of achieve your obedience another way I will write this in your heart in your conscience and that is what happens when we're baptized so I think putting all that uh, evidence from Galatians from Ephesians from the New Covenant from Romans 8 and there's more uh, believe me but uh, just putting those four points together I think that this gift which is being promised here in Acts 2 to you to your children to all that are afar off whoever believes and is baptized this is this gift of salvation and of God working within the human mind to turn us in practice into who he sees we are by status when we're baptized and that looking back at Acts 2 quite frankly that, that is the most comfortable way to, to read this you know uh, get baptized you get forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, to you is this promise and to your children to all that are afar off as many as the Lord our God shall call well the idea that well that's to two generations of Jews and to the uh, Gentiles and every one of them had the uh, gift of tongues or the gift of uh, doing miracles and it has no other reference to us we might as well put a, a red line through those verses in our Bibles and not bother reading them because it doesn't apply to us when we repent and get baptised that, that, that's to me, to be quite frank with you that, that's a most unnatural and forced uh, reading in, in, in my judgment although I, years ago I, I used it myself so I'm not having a go or anything um, but I'm just saying that in, in my judgment at this time uh, I've come to the conclusion that that is a, a most forced and unnatural reading why do we make mistakes in our Bible reading? Why did I make mistakes in my Bible study years ago when I, I was uh, coming out with that interpretation? 
or shall I say, I was a fan of that interpretation. It's like, why did the disciples just not get it that Jesus was to die and resurrect? Well, they didn't get it because it demanded an awful lot from them that if their master was to die on a cross, they also should do the same. And that's why I think they kind of zoned out. They kind of just didn't want to pay attention to that. And so with this verse here, this promise of God at work through his spirit, this gift of salvation that's given to us really in baptism, and his work in human hearts to actually achieve that in practice. Oh, you know, we'd sort of, we all rather that salvation was by works. No, I don't want God to do it. I want to do it myself. And you know how children are. This almost, we're almost born with it. I don't want you to do it for me. I want to do it myself. Although you haven't got a clue as a child and you can't. And someone has got to help you. Put that jacket on or put those shoes on or put those socks on or those tights or whatever it might be. That basic desire that I want to do this for myself. I really don't have to prove that, but if you want proof of it, you look at pretty well every single religion that there is. It's all justification by works. The Catholic Church, the Russian Orthodox Church in this country is exactly like that. You know, light your candles, pay your tithes. Adventism is the same. Keep the Sabbath, pay your tithes, don't eat unclean food. Judaism, of course, is a parade example. All these religions are the same. Go to this temple, burn that incense, go to these meetings, pay that tithe. Do something, and then you will be, hopefully, plus or minus, all right at your last day. The message of true Christianity is radically different. It is a radical grace where God says, look, I am going to save you. You are a sinner. You have hurt me so deeply. But because I am the God of all grace, I give you this salvation, just like that. If you believe it, If you want to accept it, accept it. And that's the end of the matter. And it is the end of the matter. The point is, if we do believe it, if if this good news is not too good for you, and you do believe it, of course you are not passive to that. The wonder that I shall live eternally, that all my sin is forgiven by a God, the God whom I so deeply hurt, and the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, Never again is one passive to God or to your fellow men and women around you. Never again. And you will naturally respond. If you're just going to shrug and walk on in life and live like everybody else, well, frankly, you don't believe. You know, you you don't. Because if you believe it and see the wonder of it, you will respond. So this is not cheap grace. This is not saying, ah, yeah, this is the easy way. Actually, this is the hardest way. The way of salvation by faith in grace is the most counter-instinctive, counter-intuitive way to salvation which there could ever be. And I think that's why it's few there be that find it. And so, when you are convicted that this is really so, you'll be like Peter. And say, well, I am forgiven, I I see you, oh yeah, I I, I see what I did wrong, I I see his grace to me, I'm going to stand up and and, and just testify of this. And it's consciously and unconsciously uh, in his language, he's riddled with it. And he did this, it wasn't a a case of sort of uh, dumb obedience, submission to the command of God. The motive all the way through any acceptable service of God 
is free will, that I want to do this because of what I have experienced of him. And so that's, I think, why we have this psychological barrier to accepting this simple truth that God is our saviour and God is at work through his spirit. If only you will open yourself up to it and perceive it, he's at work right in your heart to change you, to try to change you. If, if you are going to walk in step with the spirit, um, to try to change you into who he counts you to be by status and that person whom he counts you to be is his son.